You are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. In Hebrews chapter 2, we have the first of our exhortations. We have an outline that we've been uh, using in regard to the book of Hebrews that uh, the book is basically arguments and exhortations. And I think I might, in the future, subdivide this a little bit more finely because there's two exhortations I think that probably we should uh, break out and show as exhortations in the second chapter and in the third. But we had the great argument, the the wonderful opening of chapter one, that uh, God had spoken and dealt with the people for so long in so many different ways. But in these last days, he's spoken through his son, the only begotten son, the express image of his person, the exact representation of his nature. God himself in the person of Jesus Christ, who had come to be with us and to bring us the great salvation, the great deliverance from sin. And then the author had immediately launched into a comparison, a comparison of Christ and the angels. And to us who think not all that much about angels, I don't think, on a regular basis, and with many thinking about angels, mainly in the uh, guardian angel type uh, motif, you know, Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, (laughs) maybe, or hopefully a little more elevated idea than that, but uh, just not a normal part of our view of the structure of of things, the organization of, of of our world. But in the ancient world, especially with angels, having been so often God's spokesman, uh, delivery people of of news, of uh, uh, direct interveners at times in the history of Israel, of the world that they lived in, uh, angels were the highest beings that they might ever interact with. And a visitation from an angel was something worthy of record in the divine history of the people. And so here we start from the top, and Christ is so far beyond the top of their conception of the world. And so that was well done in chapter 1, and quoted repeatedly from the psalm, the position of Jesus as holding the, well, sitting on the throne with God and the throne of God, Jesus being with Jehovah as, as an equal And so now we have this first exhortation, and tonight we'll look at but four verses. I almost wanted to say, and almost want to say, well, it'll be a shorter lesson, but as soon as I say that, you know what happens. But we'll have uh, this first uh, short exhortation, and it's such a beautifully encapsulated argument, and it's so well uh, contained, self-contained that it's often used as a standalone text by itself. I know that early in my preaching, I would sometimes preach from these four verses. That's back before I realized the, you know, how it fit with the rest of it. But I thought I had a reasonable handle on what these four verses were. And oftentimes you'll see uh, lessons from this text in, in that way. But uh, this first exhortation gets to the point so directly. Uh, it deals with the central issue that this audience is facing. They're drifting away from the great salvation. So let's read it. There's tonight's text, verses 1 to 4. For this reason, 
We must pay closer attention to what we've heard, the elevated nature of Christ and what he's done. For this reason, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his will. So we have this little short exhortation, this earnest prickle in the conscience, the attempt to get these believers to think truly about what they've done. And it is, I think, uh, such an effective little exhortation that it it pricks our conscience uh, often, as, as much, I think, as it would theirs. Uh, you know, originally this little exhortation of 20 centuries ago. And here we have uh, this living word asking us, just as it asked them, what is your devotion to that living Messiah? The one who uh, came from heaven, exalted among the angels, but as we'll come to find out in the next verses, the one who came in the form of man. What are you doing in regard to his salvation? And what were they doing in regard to this salvation? So we'll take this in three parts. Verse 1, the needed attention. Verse 2, this ominous threat of justice. And verse 4, and 3 and 4, the confidence we can have because of the way this word and salvation was confirmed. So again, for this reason, verse 1, here's our need of attention. We must pay closer attention. The exhortation of every teacher everywhere, you need to be paying attention. We need to have a closer attention. Peter talked about the need to remind people, sometimes because it was just good to remind them, and sometimes it's because he feared they forgot. Uh, Sometimes it's in a case like this, that we may be drifting away, as the King James says here, lest at any time we should let them slip. It can just slip away. You know, <coughs> the thing that what was important, the thing that was the center of our mind, a thing that was so important to us in the past, and we get carried along with something else, we don't even realize how this other thing is fading in the distance. Uh, the Like when you're at the beach, and I remember when we uh, kids were quite younger and uh, preaching down in Texas. We lived in Galveston County. On some of our regular occasions, we go down to the beaches on Galveston Island. And one of the things that was a feature of that island was that not only was there waves coming in, but there's nearly always a current that's moving things up the shore to the north. Everything's moving from the southwest to the northeast. And so if you aren't paying very much close attention, then you could just, uh, by playing in the water, just be carried along and along and along. And uh, it's always to the left as the people are on the beach. And so every few minutes, you got your exercise, either walking down to where the kids were, telling them to get back over there, right? Or you got your exercise uh, with your lungs, uh, yelling at them, hoping that above their play and uh, 
above the splash of the waves. Uh, they would hear you, so you didn't have to walk over there yet again and call them back. But there's just this constant drift. And as say from facing the shore, it was to the left, or if you're facing back toward the shore, it would have been to the right. But there's just this constant pressure of the waves that would move you that direction. And this is how uh, life carries us. There's constant pressure uh, that goes in uh, one direction. Of course, sometimes culture then changes, makes it the other. But there's always a cultural pressure, and there's a family pressure. Uh, there's a, a pressure from uh, the world around us. And unless we are careful, we will drift away. So we're told things like strive to enter by the narrow door or pay close attention in this passage. And so there's effort to remain uh, with Christ. Uh, there's some diligence uh, that's required, uh, for instance, to make your calling and election sure, right? With diligence, uh, do these things. And so, first off, there's a need of attention. Need of attention. Now, what happens if you drift is you're going to get your things into yourself into situations and things that are going to require some kind of divine response. It might be a mild response. It might be a corrective response. Like we'll get to chapter 12 and that he chastens all the sons that he receives. Or it might be a much harsher thing. It might be a, a punishing response. And so verse 2 <coughs> For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. And the word spoken <laughs> through angels here is a reference to the Old Testament. There are several Old Testament passages that make mention of the mediation and the agency of angels in delivering the word to the people. And if that Old Testament law, which was uh, spoken through angels, it was the truth of God, and they could not change it, well, what about this word? It's also going to be unalterable. We're not going to alter it. But if that law, which couldn't be changed by men, because, again, no prophecy was ever made by active human will, but men moved with the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. That's why, you know, uh, it's profitable for proof, teaching, correction, instruction, and righteousness, because it's all inspired. It's all breathed out of God. Paul would tell Timothy, if this word, which is true and secure, and it came through angels, if that received a just recompense, if that received a just penalty, the question is going to be how much more is it going to be if you neglect what is said by his beloved son? And so look at the surety here of this fact. This is Old Testament, and here is the uh, Hebrew writer telling us this will be New Testament view as well, and maybe even more so, that if every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty or a just recompense, then how much more in the new? And so you don't ignore God's law without a consequence. You don't ignore God's instruction to you without there being something to come from that. Again, it might be the minor corrective. Hey, stop doing that. Or it might be, do you know what you're doing? 
maybe you should stop because if you knew what you're doing, or it's, it might be, I think you've forgotten something here. Let me tell you, or it might be all the way up to, uh, you know, uh, people going to captivity, like in the old Testament, but there is a rule that a breaking of God's law, because the holy and just one gave us this law for our good, there's a rule that something will happen, some penalty, some recompense will come. It says in Ezekiel 18.4, it says the soul that sins shall die. Well, what was it from the beginning? Don't eat of that tree, for the day you do, you'll surely die. And so there is this law of sin and death mentioned in the book of Romans, which is you sin, you die. That's the law of sin and death. It's a pretty simple law. It's a pretty basic law. You sin, you die. That law operates whether you're uh, totally ignoring God or whether you are uh, part of his covenant people. That violation of God's law has a just recompense. And really, that's how, notice, this is how the author here, in this case, ends up summarizing the Old Testament for us. He's talking about the, the law from angels. That's the Old Testament. He says what lesson you should learn from that, because whatever's written in earlier times is written for our learning, what lesson you should get from that, certainly one of them is that there is a consequence, a penalty for transgression and for disobedience. This time, I'd like to turn to the Psalms. You know, lately, I've been liking to turn to the Psalms a lot. But there's two Psalms that go together. They, they bookend each other. Psalm 105 and 106. Now, these are rather lengthy Psalms, and we certainly will not be able to read them all. But on your own time, for your own edification, look at Psalm 105 and 106 sometime. It's really meaningful, but it's also pretty simple. It is a rehearsal of the history of God's people twice. It is the story of God's faithfulness in situation after situation, and it would be kind of like a highlight of the early part of the Old Testament history of God's people. And so Psalm 105, which is the faithfulness of God psalm, starts like this. Oh, give thanks to the Lord and call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him and sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders, glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. And the reason for that is because who God is and what God has done. And then there's 45 verses about that through the history of Israel. Then there's Psalm 106, which goes through almost exactly the same list of historical events. But instead of from the perspective and explanation of a faithful God, it's about an unfaithful people. And it starts the history of unfaithfulness right when Moses delivered them from Egypt. And the first incident of their unfaithfulness recorded is before the crossing of the Red Sea. Before the crossing of the Red Sea. And then the, the famous uh, cases of rebellion in the wilderness, which led to them being rejected. Those are rehearsed at great length. And then it summarizes the history of them in the land of Israel. And this is the part we'll pause again and read. So Psalm 106, we'll start in verse 34. This is when the people got to the promised land. 
They did not destroy the peoples. God had said, get rid of these seven Canaanite nations. They didn't. It says, they did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. But they mingled with the nations and they learned their practices. That's part of that transgression and disobedience. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to demons and shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices, and they played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his inheritance. Then he gave them over to the hand of the nations. So there's all the, from the judges on, the various times where Israel had these foreigners come and invade them and oppress them. And they were subdued under their power. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel, and so sank down into their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry, and he remembered his covenant for their sake, and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. What did they do? The most wicked things possible. The most contrary things that they could do toward the law of God. But what are the words that we find here in verse 45, beginning? He, well, verse 44, he heard their cry. Verse 45, he remembered the covenant. Verse 45, he relented by his loving kindness, and he made them objects of compassion. So remembering, relenting, giving compassion, and then in the presence of their captors, he remembered them. He gathered them back up and gave them back to land after the captivity. So verse 47 concludes, Save us, O Lord God, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to thy holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say amen. Praise the Lord. So after that great history of sin, is God's relenting, compassion, and gathering. And what's the people's right response now to that? Thanks and blessing and praise. So the whole history of the Old Testament should show them over and over God's merciful deliverance. God sending them a deliverer over and over and over again. And now where are we? We're in the New Covenant. We're in the New Covenant, and what do we got? A greater gathering a greater compassion, and greater blessing. What should be the result? Well, again, thanks and blessing and praise and all the more. So, verse 3, the confirmation. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, we won't escape. And what does 20 centuries of church history teach us? Well, that you don't escape. And so look at church history and is it a long, glorious uh, outpouring of thanks and praise of a holy people to God? Or is it very much like the nation of Israel, where all of Christendom or entire society supposedly based on 
Christian principles or certainly down to the congregational and family and then individual level. Over and over, it's stories of waywardness, of sin, but then of salvation and restoration. And so all of Scripture and all of history show the continued consequences of unfaithfulness. What did Paul tell the Galatians? Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that will he reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will reap from the flesh corruption. But if he sows to the Spirit, he will from the Spirit reap eternal life. All right, so that has been confirmed repeatedly. So now, don't neglect this great salvation. And all the more, because it's been confirmed, the writer will say, to those of us who've heard. So this great salvation, not the invention of man, but the intervention of God, not authored by man, but received by man, it was first spoken through the Lord. Well, back in chapter 1, <coughs> pardon, back in chapter 1, the <coughs> we've been told that he has now in these last days spoken through his beloved son. And what was it that the beloved son spoke? Well, the beloved son spoke this salvation. Christ preached himself, the gospel, to us. Who told us who Christ was first? Christ did. Well, the angels announced that one from God is with us. John the Baptist, in preparation, said he's the Lamb of God, and he's the one that you should turn to. And then once the attention had come to Jesus, Jesus explains, I and the Father are one. I have descended from on high, and I'll ascend there again, tear down this temple, and I will build it up. And so Jesus preached to us clearly who he was, where he'd come from, where he was going, what his mission here was to willingly be the sacrifice for our sin. He explained the relationship with the Father that he had and that would be open to us. And he's the one who told us how to respond to this. Who tells us to believe in Jesus? Jesus does. Jesus is the one who tells us that you need to believe in me. If you don't, you'll die in your sins. But if you if you do, you'll have everlasting life. He's the one who told us to be born again. He's the one that told us to repent. That was one of the first messages he had, repent of the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's the one who told us to be baptized. He's the one who told us to endure. He's the one that told us then the further instructions to love one another, to follow all things uh, that, that I command and make disciples in every nation. Over and over, it's <coughs> Jesus who it is that preached the gospel to us. So he spurred, this was first spoken through the Lord. First spoken through the Lord. Then it was confirmed to us who heard, or by those who heard. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. So Jesus had those specially prepared witnesses. Jesus had those 12 who he had taught uh, nearly uh, close up, 
that he had uh, welcomed into his daily life, and, and they got to see who he was, and they got to see that these things were true. And then he gave them power, those apostles, uh, to go and teach everyone as he had instructed so that they could be witnesses of the resurrection. That's what uh, they said when they were looking to replace Judas. They needed someone who would be a witness of the resurrection. And then those went out and they taught. And so Peter could say, we didn't follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And then he quoted the words that he heard himself on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus uh, was uh, glorified on earth and that there was a word he said from the majestic glory on high, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter says, we heard this utterance. We heard this ourselves. This was made from heaven on that holy mountain. And so these men then went and told people and they confirmed it to them. It would say in Mark 16 with the signs that followed. So those apostles were given with this extraordinary message of the extraordinary savior. They were given extraordinary powers so they could do the same miracles that he did. Jesus did these miracles pointing to himself saying, believe me that I came from the father. He gave the apostles nearly the same power, just about every miracle, not quite, but in, in Maine, the same miracles Jesus did, the apostles did, up in, even including raising the dead. And they did those things saying, we do it in Jesus' name. And so they did it pointing to Jesus. Jesus did it pointing to himself. They did it pointing to Jesus. And we have heard that message. So God had testified with them. So this was the testimony of God that they did these miracles because man couldn't do them. Verse 4, God testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So this is how God testified or, or God bore witness. This is how God showed the truth, that this was the truth that these men spoke. It was with his power. And it uses the common designation, the threefold designation here, the same one that Luke would use over and over in the uh, book of Acts in regarding to what uh, miracles are. They are signs, they are wonders, they are various miracles. And then he would describe them, this Hebrew writer would, in the same way as Paul would, they are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so when we have something that's given that many definitions of what it is, it's probably, probably good to notice what those definitions are. Signs. So, well, what's a sign? A sign points to a thing or gives information, right? Sometimes <clears throat> we'll have people get the retail outlet or some other place and they're in the wrong line. And the people who work there go, look, didn't you read the sign? We had a sign here. Why didn't you read the sign? Just look up there, read the sign. The sign has information that's necessary. Or the sign might be just as simple as an, as an arrow, right? Or <clears throat> might be pointing out that, you know, this is for men and this is for women. Uh, 
well, back when we still knew what those were. But signs uh, point the way. And so there's something that, that there, there's a pointing. There is a inf uh, some information given. And the big information here is look at the power of God, right? Maybe also gather that with most miracles, God is compassionate, God is kind, because most miracles are kind and compassionate. But the, the main point, the main point, what is this pointing out? And then there are wonders. So signs and wonders. And a wonder is something that gets the attention. It causes people over and over to be amazed. Eight times in the book of Acts, it'll say that people were amazed. Or you might see in some translations the word marveled. And so these things are, are stunning. These things should be heart-opening. These things should shake you from, you know, the, the way of thought you had that was contrary uh, to God's will. It should soften the hardened hearts because there's something so amazing. This should loosen up your mind and so it won't be so tightly constricted and compacted. You can't think about this. But this, this wonder should open you up to new possibilities. And here it is, the power of God right in front of you. That should open your mind to new possibilities. And then it says they're miracles. They're miracles uh, from the Greek word dynamo. A miracle means an act of power. It, this is where we talk about a miracle not just being <coughs> marvelous, although miracles are. But this is where we talk about a miracle being <coughs> beyond the laws of nature, beyond <coughs> the regular functions. And so <coughs> sometimes in a miracle, gravity ceased to work. How else do you walk on water? Uh, sometimes physical reality ceases to be the normal physical reality. How else does water go to wine? Uh, sometimes a, a miracle might be a healing thing uh, where uh, the, the parts of the human body, the, the muscles or the bones or whatever other pieces and parts are all there that the MRI scan, you take it of a person who needed a miracle, uh, it shows, hey, you got all this dysfunction. You got structures missing or structures crushed or structures in your body not working. You got the blood flow issues or, or whatnot. And then after the miracle, if we had an MRI machine to run through again, all that stuff's fixed. No surgery, no rehab, no physical therapy, no injections, no medicines. Just it's fixed. So this is a powerful thing. And it's obviously the, a borrowed power. Like Peter would say to the man at the beautiful gate, it's not by my own power that I give you, but it's in the name of Jesus that you should stand up now and walk. And the man not just stands up and walks, the man starts leaping up and down and shouting, praise to God. And, of course, there's some, you know, scold there telling to be quiet. Uh, but it's the power, and it's borrowed power, because no man can do it. No man can do it. So we got the sign that points the way, the wonder that opens the mind, the power of God demonstrated, and lastly, it's called a gift of the Holy Spirit. Same thing as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12. There's a variety of gifts but there's the same spirit, a variety of ministries, but the same Lord, a variety of effects, but the same God who works in all persons. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, there's a list of miracles that were in the church uh, being shown 
uh, discernment and knowledge, uh, speaking in tongues and uh, uh, prophesying various other things. And so these miracles were a gift from God to men. Again, nearly always gracious and compassionate. I do suppose Elamus, who was struck blind, didn't think so at the time he was struck blind, although if it ever did cause him to repent and uh, leave magic and follow the Lord to salvation, he would have thought it the kindest thing ever done to him. But uh, uh, mostly kind and compassionate gifts, as the Gospel of Mark will summarize. The (coughs) apostles went out and preached everywhere, while the Lord... (coughs) while the Lord worked with them and confirmed the word by the signs that followed. So this was closing by or according to God's own will. (coughs) The miracles were there by God's will. (coughs) The miracles, I'll say it again. The miracle, (coughs) I'll try to say it again. Pardon. Get a little drink there. As I'm trying to close this up and say, the miracles were there by God's own will. God wanted these miracles to be done because he wanted this message to be known and believed. And that message was about Christ who had come and done God's will. So every bit of this was by God's own will. Nothing in Christ and in the gospel is by the will, the action, the desires of men. They were given of God, and we were asked to believe them. And so let's pay attention to that, and let's make sure we don't drift. What was it? Nearly 100 years ago now. So maybe not everybody remembers since it's a century ago. But a famous preacher among us, J.D. Tant, used to always say, he'd say, brethren, we're drifting. And a lot of people didn't like it that he said that. But history showed him true. Although I have a feeling that nearly any age, a brother could be known for the saying, brethren, we're drifting, and he'd probably be proven right. Because it seems to be a universal part of us. Let's make sure that we, if there are exceptions to that, that we be it by a firm faith and an attention-giving faith. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.